0: Shabbat Shalom to all of you and welcome to our newly uh, presented uh, Women's Torah Studies series. We're going to have uh, three Torah uh, Studies for Women. We are very happy and excited to present this new program of Torah Studies. and. Um, Today, we're going to uh, study the first part of these five lessons we're going to have as a free Torah study series uh, starting today and uh, continuing through the next Shabbats. And uh, uh, today we're going to have the first session in English from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Italian time, and following we're going to have the Italian uh, version of the same teaching at 7 uh, p.m. till 8, uh, 8 p.m. in Italian. So I invite all of you uh, wishing to study Torah and wishing to learn more about the Torah Yeshua as fulfilled through his life. Uh, death and resurrection as a perfect sacrifice through the Pesach we uh, celebrate every year um, and uh, to join us in this study. So today we are uh, studying this first lesson and uh, please join me. Also contact us to receive our uh, Torah's material to be able to do your homework during the week. And every Shabbat will have a particular aspect of this sermon. And the sermon is the Sermon of the Mount or so-called the Sermon of uh, the Beatitudes that speaks about our journey as believers in Yeshua. And as we know, Yeshua and his disciples, slip away from the shore in this particular uh, scripture we're going to read together that is in uh, matthew chapter 5 verse 1 through verse 16. and they slip away from the shore to escape the growing crowds and find a quiet hilltop to use and an uh, an open-air classroom so today actually the the structure of the church of the Beatitudes sits atop a small hill on the north shore of uh, Lake Galilee preserving the location of an earlier Byzantine era church that uh, believers in Yeshua pilgrims venerated as the local from which Yeshua delivered the Sermon on the Mount. So today we're going to First of all, present the first part of our study. And also we're going to have a question and answers uh, section. So I invite you all to write down your questions during the, the teaching so that you might receive also answers at the end of this teaching. And I also suggest you to take notes of the teaching uh, you'll certainly receive a printing version of our teaching upon request. But I always suggest everyone of you to write down in your own words what you are receiving. Amen. So what our focus is mainly uh, focus on uh, the group, the home groups through these lessons. With women which are searching the voice of Hashem throughout the Torah and uh, they are looking uh, forward to receive answers through the Torah and Hashem is speaking throughout his body all over uh, the world and is confirming uh, through the scriptures what's coming through the timing he has been giving us today through the parasha sermon as you will find in the in our sermons written by rabbi arel and also confirming every single detail through his scripture the torah so let's Remember that during every meeting, we have the time also to uh, fellowship. So it's also a chance to pray for each other. And if there are any prayer uh, requests, please write them so we might be able to pray for you. So this week, we begin these five lessons in the Sermon on the Mount. And um, it's important that we are all feeling. Uh, encouraged, especially during this period just coming out the COVID-19 year we have been all striving through and still here in Italy we are having uh, many people dying and also suffering uh, with COVID-19 and uh, we're seeing that we are coming out this uh, situation as Hashem is allowing us to take also courage and uh, be stronger than we were last year through this trial we have been all through in all of of the nations and it's important to join uh, our studies during this time because it's important to be united in the Ruach HaKodesh. It's important to be united in the Holy Spirit. Be aligned to the Messianic movement. And wherever you are, it's important not to be isolated. Because when we are together, we are stronger. And as Jews in the Mashiach, we are the leading witnesses of what is the Torah in us. And when we step out in faith and we proclaim the Torah through the completion, through the fulfillment that Yeshua gave us through his life, death, and resurrection, we are just giving back what Hashem has given us the gift of the Torah upon the Mount Sinai. Sinai, that is uh, a mountain we will uh, recall through the teaching today. So we want to use this uh, teaching as an opportunity to also teach every one of us about discipleship and also about the job of learning Yeshua's word. It's important if you can also to join us in person now that we can travel, we can move, uh, obviously always being aware of all the changes in our nations but we can all start meeting in person right now in open uh, spaces or in very huge big spaces so our priority is to gather as many people as we can starting from women because women in Uh, the Torah, throughout the scriptures, are so important in the redemption of Israel. As women we are called to lead the redemption of Israel. And it's written in the scriptures that the, the daughters of Zion will be responsible of the redemption of the people of Israel. And we have to pray that this call and is going to be so strong in our hearts and we will be so united to pray for one another, also to uh, preach his word so powerfully that people might hear us as it was for uh, Miriam. His mother, but also Magdalene and many other women which have been serving uh, during his life. And they were present at, at his death and at the resurrection. As we all remember, Magdalene was the first one to testify of her, his resurrection. So, we'll have, as I said, after the teaching, also a time for discussion questions and answers and um let's start (laughs) speaking about the beatitudes so we read matthew 5 verse 1 through 16 and i would uh, suggest you to open your uh, bible at the book of matthew chapter 5 Verse 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, Yeshua walked up the hill. After he sat down, his Talmidim came to him, and he began to speak. This is what he taught them. How blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. How blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. And we continue our reading. How blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for righteousness, for they will be filled. How blessed are those who show mercy, for they will be shown mercy. How blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. How blessed are those who make peace, for they will be called sons of God. How blessed are those who are persecuted because they pursue righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. How blessed you are when people insult you and persecute you and tell all kinds of vicious lies about you because you follow me. Rejoice, be glad, because your reward in heaven is great. Your reward in heaven is great, sorry. They persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. You are sold for the land, but... If salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except being thrown out out for people to trample on. You are light for the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Likewise, when people light a lamp, they do not cover it with a bowl, but put it on a lampstand so that it shines for everyone in the house in the same way let your light shine before people so that they may see the good things you do and praise your father in heaven so it's a very beautiful scripture and let's look at the scripture in the general from a general point of view having selected 12 men to serve as his inner circle of disciples. Yeshua the Moshiach is eager to begin their formal education. He wants to start his discipleship program, but the large crowds continue to hamper his efforts. So he and his disciples send a hill to escape the multitude. And he begins a discourse about entering the kingdom of heaven. And the Sermon on the Mount is the first of five major collections of Yeshua's teachings in the book of Matthew. The kingdom belongs not to the rich, the powerful, or the elite of society, but to the poor, the downtrodden, and the lowly who hunger and thirst for justice and suffer persecution for righteousness' sake. They can be considered blessed even though at this very time they suffered deprivation, indignity, and unrequited longing for the revelation of the Mashiach, of the messianic era. This message counters the propaganda of the zealot movement that advocates armed insurrection, and Yeshua's disciples, the Talmudin, carry on the spiritual mission of the nation. They are to be like salt, seasoning and preserving the world through their good deeds. They are like lambs, enlightening the world with their good works and the revelation of Hashem our God. If they fail to do so, they can be likened to salt that has lost its saltiness, or a lamb concealed beneath a bowl or under a bed. And these words allude to the mission of the whole nation of the Jewish people and contain a warning about the pending exile. Amen. Yeshua urged his disciples to let their light shine before others so that they will see the light and glorify Hashem for this. So let's focus on... Various sections. We'll have seven sections, and we'll start from the first section. But before we start studying together, let's pray together the prayer called Araini sure That means I hereby join. So Avinu Malkenu Hapa Father, I hereby join myself to the Master Yeshua the Moshiach, the righteous one, who is the bread of life and the true light the source of eternal salvation and redemption of Israel for all those who hear him like a branch that remains in a vine so may I remain in him just as he also remains in the Father, in Abba and the Father in him in order that they may remain in us. May the grace of the Master Yeshua, the Moshiach, the love, the chesed of Hashem our God and the fellowship of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, abound to us in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. So let's speak about the Beatitudes and the Mount of the Beatitudes. Matthew 5 verse 1 says, When Yeshua saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples, his Talmudim came to him. So the ministry of Yeshua drew large crowds almost from its outset. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis of Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, and all Judea, and from beyond the Jordan, as it's written in Matthew 4, verse 25. So multitudes of people saw him, and the sick uh, people followed him to be healed. The troubled, the curious, the seekers, and the se- the skeptical, as always. So Luke explains, there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throne of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him for power was coming from him and healing them all, as it's written in Luke 6, verse 17 through 19. So Matthew says that when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain to to teach, not so that The crowds would be able to better hear him teaching, but to escape the crowds so that he could have some time to teach his disciples. Matthew refers to a specific hill in the Galilee. He went up on the mountain. The mountain alludes to Moses ascending Mount Sinai to receive the the law, the, the Torah. From atop the mountain, Yeshua discoursed on the law, on the law. I'm sorry. There are no proper mountains around the sea of Galilee. As we all know, if you have been in Israel, you're probably familiar with the area, but the area is surrounded by hills and Hebrew employs the same word for both. So local believers in Yeshua traditionally identify uh, Modus Hill about the seven springs of Tapga as the location from which he delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And the hill offers a magnificent way of Lake Galilee. Its gentle slope descends to the northern shore where the springs of Tapga dramatically pour into the lake. In the spring months, wild flowers and beautiful red anomas. Uh, clothes, like Solomon in all his glory, as it's written in Matthew 6, verse 29, cover the hills, uncultivated fields. So, alluding the crowds, Yeshua, Amashiach, and East his disciples, climb the hill, and in the vernacular of first century Judaism, a rabbi sitting down is the equivalent of a rabbi or a pastor stepping up to a pulpit and when the master sat down as a rabbi in that time his disciples gathered around him to learn when the disciples saw their teacher sit down they knew what was expected of them they had a job to do so they stepped they stepped forward and he began to teach. And as we sit as teachers, there is a moment of tremendous focus upon the Ruaka Kodesh. As we listen to the Ruaka Kodesh and we speak through it him in a powerful way. Amen. So it's time for us to listen to what Hashem has to say today in Luke's version of the story Yeshua stands in a level place as it's written in Luke 6 verse 17 giving rise to the title Sermon on the Plain Luke does not however indicate that he delivered the sermon in that level place instead Luke uh, prefaces sorry the sermon by distinguishing between the large crowd and the disciples, just as Matthew does. Luke says, turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, as it's written in Luke 620, in these words, Luke indicates that Yeshua delivered the sermon to his disciples, not to the crowds. And that's a very important detail. So he began to teach them. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, as it's written in Matthew 5, verse 2, that I would suggest you to read. So the Sermon on the Mount constitutes the master's first full-length sermon in the book of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew arranges five such sermons corresponding to the five books of Torah. The first is the Bereshit, the Genesis. Then we have Exodus. Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy and each intended for easy memorization by the disciple by the Talmudin. so we have the correspondence of these five books of Moses with five different sections of the writing in the Gospel of Matthew so we have the first section that speaks about the Sermon on the Mount that corresponds to the Bereshit, the Genesis chapter five through seven. I will speak first about this section then we'll continue with the second, third, fourth <laughs> and fifth sections. So the Sermon on the Mount began Rabbi Yeshua's formal education of his Talmudim, of his disciples. As we are doing today, the sermon addresses a wide variety of discipleship issues on the team on the theme of entering the kingdom, how to usher in the messianic era. So Matthew arranged the material in an associative manner to facilitate easy memorization. And in these passages, the master laid out the practical applications of his gospel message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near it's Yeshua's guide on how to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness as it's written in Matthew 6 verse 33 it is his prescription for the path of repentance that leads to the redemption amen so let's speak about the first talk is the first section of Matthew's gospel let's speak about Beatitudes The sermon begins with a series of declarations, traditionally referred to as the Beatitudes. Each one begins beginning with the formula blessed are the. The formula appears frequently in the Bible. For example, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, as it's written in Psalm uh, chapter 1, verse 1. And the English language provides no adequate word to translate the Hebrew word ashray which prefaces the biblical formula ashray are the poor in spirit ashray are those who mourn various translations render it as fortunate or joyful blessed or even happy the Hebrew implies something closer to deeply contented contented in that sense, several of the Beatitudes seem contradictory. In what way are the poor, the mourners, the downtrodden, and the persecuted to be understood as glad and deeply content? The contradiction emphasizes a central point theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is to say, their hope is in the messianic era such men and women cannot base their happiness or sense of contentment on temporal circumstances. Instead, they must rely on Hashem, our God. And because they rely on Hashem, they find inner shalom, inner peace. In the Beatitudes, Yeshua brings good news to the lowly and down-trodden, and the prophet Isaiah says, encourage the exhausted the strengthen and strengthen the feeble say to those with anxious heart take courage fear not behold your god will come the uh, the recompense of the sham our god will come he will save you and this is written in isaiah chapter 35 verse 3 and 4 Also, the Beatitudes depict the citizens of the Kingdom of Heaven. They are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are the merciful. They are the pure in heart. They are the peacemakers. They are the ones which belong to Hashem. Contrary to expectation, however, they are also the poor in spirit, the meek, the mourning, and the persecuted. So, the opposite of ashray is the Hebrew word oi, which most English translations offer as wow. Yeshua makes several oi statements in tandem with his ashray statements. So, but wow to you, woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Luke 6 verse 24 to 26. So the holy statements and ashray statements, contrast, those who have found their fulfillment in the delights and luxuries of their world of this world against those who have set their hopes on the kingdom to come. Amen. So we'll have some study questions. You can uh, now go through and uh, have your own answers. Upon the questions coming from your workbook, you can request via email to us at page shalom kehilat at gmail.com, and it's also written down below um, this video. Amen. So, the first uh, question is, what are some common ways to translate the Hebrew word "ashrei"? The second is, why are those who are the poor, those who mourn, those who are downtrodden, and those who are persecuted to be considered blessed? And the third question is, how do we translate the Hebrew word oi? We can also have the time during this week to meditate upon the scripture we just read and meditate upon the Beatitudes as it's written in the Bible, taking some time to look up these Beatitudes under the Ashray statements from the book of Psalms, chapter one, verse one, Chapter 2 verse 12, Chapter 32 verse 1, Chapter 33 verse 12, and others you'll find on your workbook. Now let's look at the Poor in Spirit, the Section 2. As Matthew uh, speaks about the Poor in Spirit. So, let's read together Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Luke's gospel, Yeshua, a Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah declares, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of Hashem, our God. Luke 6, verse 20. According to Isaiah, The prophet, chapter 61, verse 1, the Moshiach, the Messiah, has a divine mandate to proclaim good news to the poor. As it's written in Luke 4, verse 18, Yeshua declared the poor to be the heirs. Amen. Of the messianic era. The kingdom reverses the value system of this present age. In the messianic era, the first will be the last and the last will be the first. The wealth and beneficence I'm sorry, of the kingdom will satisfy those who once suffered in want and need, while the rich, however, will find entrance into the kingdom difficult. In fact, we can read in Luke 6 verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Yeshua says, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 19 verse 23. So the rich have failed to store their treasure in heaven. They have stored up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. The same principle divine of divine reversal applies to the reward and punishment of the afterlife let's remind about um, abraham abraham tells the rich man in torment child remember that during your life you receive your good things and likewise lazarus bad things but now is being comforted here and you are in agony. This is written in Luke 16 verse 25. So most of us don't think that we are rich. But by comparison with world poverty and the standard of living in Yeshua's day, most modern people in developed first world countries are rich. So what can we do about it? Well, Matthew's version of the Beatitude is broader and offers a little more hope for the affluent disciple. Instead of limiting the Beatitude to just the economically poor, Yeshua says, blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit refers to one's attitude and conduct. The poor in spirit might be men of wealth, but they conduct themselves with the humility of the poor. They do not rely upon their riches or live according to the extravagances of the affluent. The poor in spirit does not conduct himself with the oughtiness and pride that his wealth affords, but instead lives modestly, employing his wealth for the kingdom. Let's invest in the kingdom of heaven, brothers and sisters. Amen. Such a person is rich toward Hashem as it's written in Luke 12 verse 21. By the same measure, a poor man who lives extravagantly and at the expense of others is not poor in spirit. As it's written in Proverbs uh, 13 verse 7, there is one who pretends to be rich but as nothing another pretends to be poor but as great wealth so James the brother of the of the Moshiach of the master explains the poor in spirit as those who refuse the glory in their wealth but adopt the attitude of the humble remembering that their lives are fragile and quickly fleeting as it's written in James 1 verse Uh, 10 and 11. So Paul, Shaul, the apostle, warns those who are rich not to be uh, conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on Hashem, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And he urges the rich to be generous in good deeds. So in Mitzvot, And sharing in order to store treasure for the future. This is written in First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. So also the second section can be discussed through three questions. uh, Four, sorry. The first question for your study, time is what is the principle of Divine Reversal? The second question is what do the wealthy find difficult to do? The third question is what does it mean to be poor in spirit? And the last and fourth question is what does it mean to be rich toward Hashem our God as it's written in Luke uh, chapter 12 verse 21 so, I encourage you to write down on your note, notebook and your workbook. You can ask us to be sent to your uh, email address. All these answers so you can meditate upon scriptures uh, during your own time this week and have also uh, intimacy with Hashem. Amen. So, We can also, at the time, as a family, as Mishpachot, to discuss first about the contrast, uh, the difference between being poor and being poor in spirit. Then discuss what it might look like to be rich in spirit. And we're going to do it in small groups. Amen. And this is written in Proverbs 13, verse 7. Now let's look at those who mourn, as it's written in Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When you lose someone, or when your heart is broken and sorrowful, You obviously don't feel happy about it, but Yeshua teaches happy are those who mourn. In what way should a mourner feel happy? And when will mourners find this promised consolation? As we have just passed through this celebration of Lag Beomer, we have experienced a great loss with 45 people dead during the celebration in Israel. And it is important to know that when we testify the presence of the Moshiach in us, we testify every word of the Torah in us. So it's important to show the happiness that comes from Hashem despite the mourning. Yes, we do mourn. And it's important to mourn for those who are dead and also to pray for the family of those victims so that might find restoration. They might find redemption through the Moshiach of Israel, Yeshua, through our prayer and supplication. And it's important to testify his joy because Hashem is our joy. Above all circumstances, as Jews, we all know that whatever has happened in the past and is still happening, Hashem is always with us. And the promises are always valid for the people of Israel that Hashem has given us. The covenant that Hashem has with Israel has never been broken amen so the master yeshua hamashiach says blessed are those are you who weep now for you shall love in luke 6 verse 21. so the question in in what way should a mourner feel happy and when will mourners find this promised consolation comes through the scripture in Luke 6, 21. The Bible says that in the kingdom, our mouth was filled with laughter. Those who saw in tears shall reap with joyful shouting as it's written in Psalm 126. The kingdom offers hope of consolation for the brokenhearted and the bereaved this explains why jewish tradition prescribes reading mourners with the words may you be comforted along with the other mourners of zion and Jerusalem. the moshiach yeshua contrasted those who mourned for zion against the powerful and elite of society such as the romans the erodians and the sadducees He said, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep, as it's written in Luke 6.25. So when the kingdom comes, those who have loved this present world and its deceits will suffer loss. But those who mourn over the exile and yearn for Zion's redemption will find their consolation in the kingdom of heaven. Amen they will be comforted because Yeshua HaMashiach fulfills the messianic mission to bring good news to the afflicted to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners to comfort all who mourn to grant those who mourn in Zion the oil of gladness instead of mourning as we have been studying already together in Isaiah 61 verse 1 through 3 that is so powerful scripture that speaks about the redemption of Israel and the function we as women have in the three keys for redemption Hashem has given us that I would suggest you to have a look through our uh, messianic bible studies on our youtube channels and also on our soundcloud channel now let's focus on the third section Mm -hmm. that speaks about the revenge of the meek we're reading matthew 5 verse 5 sorry blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth Yeshua says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Who are the meek? The Greek text behind this saying implies one who is quiet, passive, and submissive, which is why the new American standard renders it it as blessed are the gentle. So Yeshua did not teach in Greek, as we all know. Instead, the saying... Alludes to the Hebrew of Psalms 37 verse 11, which says, "The humble, the humble Anabim will inherit the land." The Hebrew Anabim refers not to one who is meek and mild mannered, but rather to the powerless, to uh, the downtrodden, to the subjugated and the victimized. The Hebrew word for earth. Is Eretz in Hebrew also means land and in this precise context it refers specifically to the Holy Land to Israel the land of Israel so therefore in Matthew 5 verse 5 should be we should understand uh, what it's written as it says blessed are the subjugated and down For they will inherit the land of Israel. In this sense, the Beatitude refers to the faithful Jewish people of the Master's Day who suffered under Roman oppression and to those of every generation who have suffered exiles and foreign domination. The Messianic era will reverse the roles. Those who were once uh, powerless and humble under the boot of the Gentile nations will possess the promised land and subjugate their enemies. Then the words of the the prophecy will be fulfilled from Luke 1 verse 52 that says, He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. And this is Miriam, Yeshua's mother speaking. Amen. yeshua's beatitude about the humble and oppressed contradicted the philosophy of the zealots the zealots believed that the romans could be driven out by insurrection harm, uh, armed resistance and terrorism the zealots taught the oppressed to take up weapons and throw off their subjection yeshua taught that Ultimately, uh, ultimately, the oppressed will inherit the land, not by means of terrorism and insurrection, but by the divine reversal of the kingdom of heaven. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword, but those who patiently endure and hope in the Lord will ultimately receive the kingdom. Amen. So even for this third section, we have few questions. The first one is, what does the English word mean? And I challenge you to answer (laughs) reading through your workbook. The second is, what does the Hebrew word "anabin" mean? The third question is, give two definitions for the Hebrew word Eretz. And the fourth question is against which ideology is the, the attitude of Matthew 5 verse 5 directed as a group discussion in your small group. You can speak about the Psalm 37 to get the broader picture behind Matthew 5 verse 5, according to the song, who will be inheriting the land. What do you think? So, let's pass now to the fourth section. As we speak of those who hunger and thirst, in Matthew 5, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So, Yeshua thought his disciples that those who hunger and thirst now are especially blessed because they will enjoy being satisfied in the messianic era. Does this refer to the poor and needy, or literally, hunger for lack of food and thirst for lack of clean water? Or does it refer to spiritual hunger and thirst? The Gospels report two different versions of the saying with two different connotations. In fact, in Luke's version of the Sermon of the Mount, Yeshua says, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied, as it's written in Luke 6, verse 21. And woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry, as it's written in Luke 6, verse 25 the tradition preserved in the apocryphal gospel of thomas agrees with luke's version thomas 69 says blessed are those who go hungry for the stomach of the one in want will be filled these sayings indicate that yeshua had literal poverty scarcity and want in view in the kingdom of heaven roles will be reserved Those who suffer want and need due to misfortune and social injustice in this present age will be well fed in the messianic age, while those who fed their own stomachs without thought for the needy will find themselves experiencing hunger and poverty. Then the words of Miriam's prophecy will be fulfilled as it's written in Luke 1 verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. So Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount changes completely the subject from those who suffer physical hunger to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. One who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is one who yearns for the reversal of social and moral injustice as the Jewish people groaned under Roman tyranny. They hungered and thirsted for the day that Hashem our God would vindicate them and usher in his kingdom on earth. Yeshua HaMashiach assured his disciples that they are yearning for Hashem our God righteous vindication would be satiated, I'm sorry, when the messianic era comes. Therefore, the two versions of the same complement one another. And when the kingdom comes, the literally uh, the literally hungry and thirsty will be satisfied and uh, Reversal of circumstances will satisfy all who have hungered and thirsted for righteousness and justice. Now let's focus on section four. Study questions. The first question is, according to Matthew's version of the the Beatitudes, who will be satisfied? The second question is, according to Luke's version of the Beatitudes, who will be satisfied? And the third question is, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? As a group discussion within your small group, you can first contrast the difference between hunger and the hunger and thirst for righteousness then explain how the messianic era answers to both versions of the the Beatitude. Now let's look at the compassionate. Matthew says in verse 7, chapter 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Those who are merciful and compassionate, compassionate Toward others are blessed, because they will receive mercy and compassion from Hashem. Conversely, one who does not show mercy toward others should not expect to receive mercy from heaven. The Talmud, as we all know, in the tradition, traditional Jewish commentary says, "He who is merciful to men." Forward Hashem, our God, is merciful in heaven. So, the beatitude of the merciful, finding mercy with God, belongs to a series of the Moshiach's teachings based upon the biblical rule of measure for measure. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Yeshua explained. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then Yohappa, your, your father will not forgive your transgressions. And this is written in Matthew uh, chapter six verse fourteen and fifteen. For this reason disciples of Yeshua cannot hold grudges or practice vengeance and retaliation. We are told, pardon and you will be pardoned in Luke 6, verse 37. So the sages extended this principle of receiving mercy on the merit of showing mercy even to how we treat animals. But now let's talk about also the pure of heart Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see Hashem, God. Matthew 5, verse 8. The Lord told Moses, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and leave. Exodus 33, verse 20. So nevertheless, the Moshiach Yeshua taught that the pure in heart will see Hashem, our God. In Biblical Hebrew, we use the word heart to refer to the mind the core from which a human being thinks, reasons and acts why does yeshua say that the pure in heart will see hashem according to the torah's laws of ritual purity only the levitically pure may enter into the holy temple where hashem dwells levitical purity is is A prerequisite to entering Hashem's presence. Psalm 24 brings that ritual purity symbolism into the moral sphere. In fact, we read in Psalm 24 verse 3 and 4 Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and has not sworn deceitfully. So in Psalm 24, the man with clean hands and a pure heart is a man of integrity. The impure heart is a deceitful and devious mind that cherishes sin and meditates upon unwholesome intention. The man with a pure heart does not harbor deceit, malice, or immorality in his mind. He will receive a pure revelation of Hashem, our God. As it says, the upright will behold his face. It's written in Psalm 11, verse 7. And I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. It's written in Psalm 17, verse 15. Therefore, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us to pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And this is written in Hebrew 12 verse 14. Amen. So this is a good news for the pure in heart. But what about the rest of us? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, martyrs adulteries, fornications, thieves, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, says Matthew 15, verse 19 and 20. The Lord says that in the messianic era, I will sprinkle clean water onto you and you will be clean from all your filthiness. I will give you a new heart and a, and a put new spirit within you. And this is written in the book of the prophet Ezekiel 36, verse 25 and 26. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. This is written in Isaiah 40, verse 5. The last group we are focusing on on is the group of the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, Matthew 5 verse 9. So Yeshua's beatitude about peacemakers contradicted the 1st century zealot impulse that called for taking up armed resistance against Rome. Several of his Talmudim embraced the zealot idea. The Beatitude about peacemaking attempted to turn, to turn their uh, thoughts away from armed revolution. In fact, peacemakers appear in Psalm 34, verse 14, as those who pursue peace seek peace and pursue it. A man who pursues peace endeavours to make peace. He does not passively wait for his enemies to be reconciled to him. Instead, he pursues after peace like the working man pursues his daily wages. He seeks peace with his enemies and he seeks to make peace between a man and his fellow and between a man and his wife. James, the brother of the Moshiach, says that the peacemaker can be likened to a man who sows his field. He plants peace, but when the crop ripens, he harvests righteousness. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And this is written in James 3, verse 18. For this very reason, the writer of the book of Hebrews urges us to pursue shalom, peace, with all men. Hebrews 12 verse 14. We have to remember, brothers and sisters, this verse every day. And Shaul, the Apostle Paul, tells us, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, Romans 12 verse 18, by making peace on earth we bring the world closer to the messianic era when the Prince of Peace will reign by practicing peace now we participate in the peace of the coming kingdom importing the messianic era into today's world. Now. Let's speak about the persecuted. The persecuted are mentioned in Matthew uh, 5 or 10 that says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be persecuted for the sake of righteousness means to suffer for the sake of fidelity to Hashem. Despite various types of coercion, coercion I'm sorry, and attempts to force a person into compromise and apostasy. Yeshua taught his Talmidim, his disciples, to expect that type of persecution. By saying theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Yeshua indicates that those who endure persecution for his sake would find entrance into the kingdom. So, so, the Jewish people had a long legacy of enduring suffering and persecution for their allegiance to Hashem. In the day before the Asmonean revolt, the wicked Syrian Greeks persecuted and even martyred Jewish people who remained faithful to the commandments of circumcision, Shabbat observance, and dietary. Uh, dietary laws, and the same faith awaited the faithful Jews of the apostolic and post-apostolic age as the Roman world attempted to suppress the practice of Judaism. So Rabbi Yeshua, our Mashiach, warned his Talmudin that they would be insulted, persecuted, and falsely accused specifically because of their affiliation with him. He said, blessed are you when men hate you, and uh, ostracize you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil, for the sake of the Son of Man. Luke 6, verse 22. He reminded his disciples his Talmudim that the prophets of all suffered similar persecution from their countrymen. He said, be glad. In that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Luke six verse twenty-three. Yeshua's talmidim, his disciples, should be concerned if they never experience some measure of persecution for the sake of Moshiach. Woe to you when old men speak well of you, for their uh, their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Luke 6, verse 26. So the reward of the persecuted is laid up in heaven that it is to say it remains with God to be paid out at the coming of the kingdom of heaven. They came to live and reign with the Moshiach for a thousand years. And this is written in the book of Revelation 20, verse 4, that I would suggest you to read. Now let's have a look to the section 5 as we speak of the salt of the earth. Matthew 5, verse 13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So our Rabbi, Yeshua, called his Talmidim to act as the salt of the earth. The ancient world used salt as a preservative. In the temple, the priests, in fact, salted the sacrifices to prevent uh, putrefaction of the meat. And the Torah refers to an eternal, enduring covenant as a covenant of salt. Just as salt flavors and preserves, Yeshua wanted his disciples to preserve and repair the world. Judaism expresses the concept of preserving the world as tikkun olam, fixing the world. Yeshua wanted his disciples to save the world, so to speak, by spreading the urgent message of repentance to their generation, through example and teaching. So he knew that A terrible doom hung over the nation in the form of impeding judgment and exile. And he wanted his disciples to become the influence for good that could avert that disaster. A little bit of salt can make an otherwise bitter taste palatable. His disciples are to be the influence for good and righteousness, that balances the bitterness and ugliness of the world. And all that is evil and wrong and wicked. So the Master warned his Talmidim, his disciples, not to lose their saltiness. Amen. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? And this is for all of us, brothers and sisters. Mark 9, verse 50. He said, If even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to ear, let him hear. Luke 14, verse 34 and 35. So can salt lose its salinity? Well, the Talmud records a debate between a famous rabbi named Yehoshua and a school of Greek philosophers from Athens. In the course of the debate, uh, the philosophers attempt to stump Rabbi Yehoshua with a series of riddles. At one point they ask him, when salt becomes unsavory, how can it be made salty again? So Rabbi Yeshua, Yehoshua answers the riddle with another riddle. He says, salt may be made salty again with the afterbirth of a mule. The philosopher's object, does a mule have an afterbirth, where mules are born sterile, uh, sterile and therefore they do not reproduce or have afterbirth, Rabbi Yehoshua explains and can salt lose its saltiness, just as a mule cannot have after birth, the laws of chemistry make it impossible for salt to lose its saltiness. Yeshua played on the absurdity of the idea that salt could lose its flavor. If other foodstuffs taste bitter, they can be salted into palatability, but this would not work for the soul itself. Just as salt without salinity would no longer serve any purpose, so too Talmudine disciples who fail to perform their function as disciples, are no longer serving their purpose. If soul loses its saltiness, it is not salt. So we want to ponder on this reading. And there are other three questions for this fifth section that you can go through on your workbook, in your time, and answer these questions. Number one, for what did the ancient world you salt. Number two question is define the Hebrew term tikkun olam. And the third question is what was the terrible doom that hung over the nation? We have also two extra questions. The number four is how were the Talmidim, the disciples of Yeshua supposed to help save the world and avert disaster. Number five question is, with what can salt be made salty again after it has lost its salinity? As a group discussion in your small group during this week, you can answer this question. Reiterate the point of the saying about salt losing its saltiness, using your own world. How does that relate to us? And I challenge you to answer through a written version, but also to discuss among you in your small groups. Now, let's focus on the section number six, light of the world. In Matthew 5, verse 14 through 16, we read, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works, your midst fought and glorify your Father, your Abba, who is in heaven. So Yeshua told his Talmidim, his disciples, that they were the salt of the earth. In the same teaching, he told them, you are the light of the world. With these words, he urged his Talmidim to fulfill their national mission as Jews, to be a lie to the world. They were to provide spiritual enlightenment for the world around them and to spread the kingdom's message of repentance that could avert the looming judgment. The interior walls of first century houses had small uh, small, uh, niches in which the homeowner placed on an oil lamp for illumination, and from that perch the lamp gives light to all who are in the house. Yeshua pointed out the absurdity of lighting a lamp and then covering it with a basket. Just as salt without salinity fails to fulfill its purpose, a lamp under a ball or a bed is also useless, as we all know. In the two analogies, salt and light, correspond. So the Talmidim, the disciples, are the salt of the world and the light of the world. Retaining our saltiness is equivalent to letting our light shine before men. Losing our saltiness is equivalent to hiding our light under a ball. So what is the saltiness? What is the light? How can Yeshua's disciples retain their saltiness? And how can they give light to everyone in the house? Well, the master Yeshua answered, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your mitzvot, your good works, and glorify your Abba, Father, who is in heaven. The Talmudim's main message consisted for their mitzvot, their good works, their acts. In Judaism, the term good works is idiomatic for acts of loving kindness. Amen. Loving kindness, chesed, and the fulfillment of the commandments. Yeshua told his disciples that if they kept the commandments according to his teaching, they would retain the influence of their saltiness, and their light would shine before men and bring honor to Hashem. The salt and the light in Matthew 5 verse 13 through 16 sees words which have meaning. So the salt is equal to... Talmidim, the disciples, the saltiness means good deeds, mitzvot. Salt without saltiness is the disciples, the Talmidim, without good deeds. The lamp represents the disciples, the light represents the good deeds, so the mitzvot. And the concealed lamp is equal to disciples without good deeds. The meaning is that a disciple who does not practice, who does not put into practice what he studies through good deeds, the commandments, and the teaching of the Master Yeshua Amashiach is not fulfilling his purpose and has become useless. So, there are a few questions also for this uh, section that I would suggest you, as always, to write and to ponder in your time. Number one, with what source of illumination were first-century homes lit? In what way? Number two, were Yeshua's disciples to provide light for the world? Number three, in the two analogies, what do the salt and light symbolize? As group discussion in your small group, home group, you can compare two teachings of Yeshua about the light of the world, Matthew 5 verse 14, and Yohanan, John chapter 8 verse 12. Amen. Now let's look at the transmitting of the teaching how can we transmit the teaching luke chapter 8 verse 16 through uh, and 17 now no one after lighting a lamp covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed but he puts it on a lampstand so that so that those who come in may see the light they come in the room amen for nothing is eaten that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So we are in a complete darkness and this light is so important for that darkness to exist, that even though the light is so small, it can represent a double sore that can break all chains in the darkness, and spread light. Amen. Each one of us has a specific call in our lives, a specific mandate, a specific mission, a specific purpose. We all have to find it in Yeshua. Amen. He gives us the purpose in our lives is the only way to receive the redemption in the mashiach and have a personal relationship with hashem abba our father so yeshua used the same lamp illustration to achieve a different point in the gospel of mark chapter 4 verse 21 and luke in those contexts he compared his talmidim his disciples again to lambs And as a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it, or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? Sorry, lampstand. The meaning in that particular context is that his disciples should not be reluctant to transmit the teaching they learn from him. His teachings are not like the secret esoteric lessons of the mystics that were whispered from one rabbi into the ear of his Talmidim or others over here. Instead, Yeshua Hamashiach wanted his Talmidim to disseminate his teaching broadly, for nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Mark 4, verse 22 and 23. So the version of the lamp illustration preserved in the uh, apocryphal Gospel of Thomas agrees with the Markan and Lucan context about transmitting Yeshua's teachings. Thomas 33 says, What you will hear in your ear in the outer ear proclaim from your rooftops. After all, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, nor does one put it in a hidden place. Rather, one puts it on a lampstand so that all who come and go will see its light. So the hidden lamp in Mark 4, verse 21 till 23 as well as in Luke chapter 8 verse 16 and 17 sees the lamp as the Talmidim, the disciples, the light as the transmission of Yeshua's teaching, the concealed lamp as the Talmidim who do not transmit his teaching, and the meaning is a disciple who does not transmit the teaching of his rabbi is not fulfilling his purpose and has become useless now brothers and sisters the last section that we're gonna have a look together is the city on the hill the question is what did Yeshua mean when he referred to his Talmidim his disciples as the light of the world The saying hinted toward the destruction of Jerusalem, which is a city set on a hill. In Matthew 5, verse 14 and 15 says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So a lamp. Placed under a ball, extinguishes itself for lack of oxygen. You can try it. <laughs> it always uh, happens. The extinguishing of the light of the world in toward the destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple, which are also referred to as the light of the world. Yeshua foresaw the danger and urged. Is Talmidim, his disciples, to influence the generation toward repentance? Along the same line of thought, Yeshua warned Is Talmidim that salt without saltiness is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet, as it's written in Matthew 5, verse 13. These words creep, uh, I'm sorry, creep alluded to the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming exile that is the so-called times of the Gentiles as it's written in Luke chapter 21 verse 24 they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Amen. So that is to say, if Israel had repented under the teaching, the teaching of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, and the influence of his disciples, the destruction of Jerusalem might have been averted and the redemption would have dawned. As the prophet Isaiah says, Arise, shine, for your light has come and nations shall come to your light. They shall bring the praises of the Lord. Isaiah 60, verse 1 through 6. Let's look at the last questions for this section 7 of our Bible study for today. Study question number 1. To what does the city set on a hill allude? Number 2 question in this interpretation what does the extinguishing of the light symbolize question number three what does the trampling underfoot of the soul symbolize and as a group discussion in your small group I would suggest you to think about what would you think is meant by the so-called times of the Gentiles, as it's written in Luke 21, verse 24, also Revelation 11, verse 2. This is a very interesting verse that I challenge you to uh, take a look at. And in your workbook, you will find all the questions and reading we have been through and you'll have the time to meditate upon the scripture, uh, answer the questions, also have discussions throughout the week within your small group. If you are not part of any small group, I would suggest you to contact us via email so you can join us in your local area, uh, small groups and minions, so you can be blessed in Yeshua's name. And... Primary sources we have been uh, using in addition to the uh, book of Matthew chapter number 5 verse 1 through verse 16 are also some of the commentaries and uh, foundational collection of Jewish law arranged in uh, 63 uh, tractates that is the Talmud and also the Gospel of Thomas that is a first or second century Coptic non-canonical sayings gospel. So, I hope you have been blessed with this uh, Torah study, first appointment. Uh, We are going to see each other next Shabbat. Before that, you'll have your small group discussion and uh, mm, gathering during the week, so I I would suggest you to contact us, as I said, if you don't have any uh, family or small group to join. And uh, blessing in Yeshua. Before we finish, I'm going to pray for this uh, Torah study we are doing specifically for women. Amen. Aminu Malkenu. Abba, Father, I thank you for this time you have been giving us to be at your presence. Father, let this light shine. Let your light shine in us. Let us be light and salt to shine upon the darkness of this world, to testify your presence in us, to be your body in this world, to be testimonies of your faithfulness, your compassion, your love and kindness through your good deeds. Let us uh, put into practice what we have learned today in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Shavua tov to all of you and speak to you soon. later.